welcome to another episode of the Blooms and Barnacles podcast, where we talk about everything related to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Kelly. And I'm Dermot. Welcome, Dermot. Hello, Kelly. Nice to see you again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to start out with a couple of things. First of all, is something that's been plaguing me the last two weeks, which is a correction. I said that Stephen Dedalus in our last episode was 20 years old. But he's actually 22. You're fired. (laughs) From my my own podcast. (laughs) The other thing I have is a plug. So two podcasts ago, episode five, we talked to Jack and PJ from Sweeney's Pharmacy in Dublin. If you don't know about Sweeney's, they are the location where Leopold Bloom bought his lemon soap. And they're also a longtime Dublin institution uh, with strong Joycean connection. They, like many old buildings in Dublin right now, are imperiled because their building was sold and they survive on donations and their rent doubled this year. So they're worried they won't make it through another year. Yeah, another doubling would be very hard on them if that were to happen. Well, hopefully that doesn't happen. Mm. But they're having trouble affording their rent right now. So they've set up a Patreon page. If you're not familiar with Patreon... You can go and subscribe uh, a donation every month and you'll get some kind of little prizes from them, Uh, you know, different Sweeney's themed (laughs) swag or merchandise or whatever you want to call it. Anyway, go check their their page out. It's well worth it and you can subscribe for as little as a dollar a month, which might sound like peanuts, but actually the small donations really make up a lot of what people earn on Patreon. And the amount of money they're trying to raise, I think, is less than 2,000 euro a month. It's really mm. a small amount of money, and it would be sad to see such an institution go away on our watch mm. as as we, you know, enter a new era for Dublin and many other cities around the world. There are very few parts of Dublin where you can visit that are uh, authentically the same. Yes. And the city is basically being rebuilt as we speak. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it would be horrendous if this were to go. Yeah, what I've been saying to people on social media is don't let Sweeney's get turned into a Starbucks on your watch. Mm, Yeah. And the secret to Patreon is uh, many small donations. A lot of people said, oh, I would love to, but I can't afford it. A dollar a month, you can afford that. Mm -hmm. Um, So if they have a thousand people giving a dollar a month, many of their Mm -hmm. problems go away. So uh, hopefully we can get a thousand people. And I'm a patron, so I wouldn't pitch something to you that I didn't believe in. And I... I'm not rich. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not rich. No, I'm not rich. Um, I'm a teacher. I'm not rich. Um, I will include a link to their Patreon page in our notes. And, and I, also, uh, if anyone listening is ever in Dublin, definitely pay them a visit. Anyway, check out their Patreon. And if you're not sure or you'd like to know a little bit more, check out our episode on them two episodes back, episode five. It's just called Sweeney's Pharmacy. I've plugged that <laughs> two subsequent episodes in a row i'm really proud of that episode (laughs) me too and uh let's move on and record another episode that we'll be proud of so moving on from a big picture topic i want to focus on something that's much smaller we're going to be focusing today on a character and that is haynes the ponderous saxon as buck mulligan calls him in telemachus the first episode Let's start out by asking Dermot mm-hmm. what he knows about Haynes. Haynes? He's an Englishman who, from, with an Oxford education who has sort of gone native in Ireland. He has a fascination for Ireland and the culture, even though his background is entirely English. Speaks the language, he wants to get involved in the, uh, the Gaelic revival. And essentially, uh, he's caught between two worlds. So he's English, but he sort of secretly wants to be Irish. 
Yeah, that's a pretty good description. So Haynes is, like I said, he's really easy to overlook. He is sort of a buffoon. He appears only in a few episodes of Ulysses. He appears in Telemachus, which is the first episode, and he appears in Wandering Rocks and in Circe at the end, which is the the supernatural nightmare episode and my favorite episode in Ulysses. He has a couple of off-screen appearances where he's mentioned or referenced by another character. So yeah, he's a student from Oxford who's in Ireland because he loves Ireland. He just loves Ireland. He speaks the Irish language, which a quick note here, we're going to be talking about the Irish language a fair bit this week. We talked about it a little bit last week, both in terms of Irish, the language, and Hiberno-English, the English that's spoken in Ireland. Pretty much everyone in Ireland speaks English. There is a, a language called Irish. You might have heard it called Gaelic before. It is not called Gaelic by anyone who speaks it. It's called Irish, and that's the word I'm going to use when I talk about it today. If you want to debate me on that, meet me on Twitter. If you meet an Irish school child and ask them what's your least favorite subject, they will say Irish. They won't say Gaelic. <laughs> so bear that in mind. Okay. But unlike Dermot, Haynes loves Irish. And one thing he's doing while he's visiting Ireland, he's a friend of Buck Mulligan's, is that he wants to collect all kinds of sayings and Irish words and folklore from Ireland. And he is particularly keen to get his hands on a book called Love Songs of Connacht by future president of Ireland, Douglas Hyde. As a side note, if you want to see an original copy of Love Songs of Connacht, you can see it. It's on display at the National Library of Ireland in in Dublin. As long as that exhibition's on. The WBH one? Yeah, it's part of the... There's a WBH exhibition on right now. So if you're listening to this when it first comes out, you should still be able to see that. I think I already mentioned that Haynes was a student from Oxford, and he's characterized as being fairly clueless and naive and a bit anti-Semitic. Haynes says in Telemachus, Of course, I'm a Britisher, Haynes' voice said, and I feel as one. I don't want to see my country fall into the hands of German Jews either. That's our national problem, I'm afraid, just now. Now, I think that's a side reference to Marxism. Mm-hmm. And uh, it could be anti-Semitic and anti-Marxist as well, mind you. But yeah. uh, the perception would have been a lot of the people involved in communism were European Jews. So, you know, to what extent is pure anti-Semitism or, or just being a typical conservative mm-hmm. of his class? I guess my feelings on that is there isn't much mention of Marx throughout hmm. the rest of the book. But the main character who's introduced in 100 pages or so is Jewish. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. a lot of anti-Semitism that he faces. Right. And that's a major theme of the book. So, right. And before we uh, worry mm-hmm. about the anti-Semitic problem in Ireland in the early 20th century... Let's just note that one of the most famous Lord Mayors of Dublin was Jewish. Hmm. Uh, Joe Briscoe, I think his name mm-hmm. was. And his son, Ben Briscoe, was also a member mm-hmm. of Parliament. So it's a, it's a peculiar country, to mm-hmm. put it mildly. Well, and, you know, I think there was a good deal of anti-Semitism in those places that time. Mm, yeah. All right. So, as with many people who appear in Ulysses, Haynes was based on a person that James Joyce actually knew. He was a young man who was an Oxford student named Richard Samuel Chenevy Trench. Joyce lived in the Martello Tower in Sandy Cove in real life, just as Stephen Dedalus and his cohorts lived in it in Ulysses. Joyce himself and then his friend Oliver St. John Gogarty, who's the inspiration for Buck Mulligan. And then this other young man named Trench. We'll just refer to him as Trench because, as you'll see, he has 
a variety of names that he went by, but he is easily described as trench, I guess. So Gogarty lived in this tower for a few months. Uh, well, he lived there for a few years altogether, but he lived there for a few months in 1904 when Joyce moved in. And this whole incident takes place over six days in August of 1904, whereas Ulysses takes place in June of 1904. So Joyce lived in the tower for about six days, and the reason his time in the tower was so short is connected, at least based on Gogarty's retelling, to his acquaintanceship with Mr. Trench. I got interested in Trench because there's not much known about him. Like, there's not a whole lot written about him. Like, Gogarty, there are volumes written on that guy. He wrote several autobiographies. Obviously, Joyce is well-documented as well. Mm -hmm. But really what got me interested in finding out who he was is the fact that he has no Wikipedia page. (laughs) So it's a mystery, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And he has cousins who have detailed Wikipedia pages, other other trenches. Mm. And so I really wanted to find out who he was. Just that that little bit of of, uh, lack of internet presence made it very tantalizing for me. Yeah, there might be a little mystery here. So what do I know about him? As I said, he was an Oxford student, a friend of Gogarty's. He was called Samuel to start out with, and he was an ardent Irish nationalist, despite the fact that he was from England. And he had several cousins, as I mentioned, who are really quite interesting women. They, I think, are probably too far outside the purview of Ulysses to really get into them here. But I've links in the episode notes, there'll be a, a link to a, an article I recently read about his cousin Cheska Trench. He had two cousins, Cheska and Margot, who took on Irish names, both first names and surnames, and were very involved in Irish nationalism, even more directly than him, because Cheska in particular was living in Dublin during the, the 1916 Rising, and she was at the general post office during the gpo yeah ground zero of yeah. the fighting yeah against the wishes of her very pro-english and protestant mother but he's actually responsible for getting both of his cousins involved in irish nationalism and they were all born in england and they are what we'd call anglo-irish which dermot what's what's that mean a person of english background who has moved to ireland either you know descended of people far back or more recent. I mean, in, in this case, I think what Trench's family may have been much more recent uh, mm-hmm. immigrants into Ireland. Some of the Anglo-Irish yeah. could go back to the you know mm-hmm. 1600s or, or earlier. Um, so it's it's a very wide. Uh, yeah, group of as far as I understand of Trench, he's often described as Anglo-Irish. But the first time he came to Ireland was on Gogarty's invitation in 1904 when they were mm-hmm. both students at Oxford. Gogarty met this guy because he was an active member of the Oxford Gaelic Society. And Gogarty thought, I think kind of that there's just a novelty to this English kid who's so obsessed with Ireland that he speaks the Irish language fluently, which most Irish people don't. Yeah, it's a very, very difficult language to learn. Um, we've, I began learning it at the age, like most Irish kids, at the age of four, and I can't speak any of it. I mean, mm-hmm. I, can, I can blunder through a few words or crude phrases, Pigeon Irish wouldn't begin to describe it. Mm, okay. <laughs> but uh, I think uh, Gogarty wanted to take him to Ireland and show him the ropes. And he kind of never left. Like he, uh, I think he, he spent a lot of time in the West and just kind of ha- of Ireland, which is where m- most Irish language speakers live. 
And then he brought him to stay in Dublin with him at the Martello Tower in Sandy Cove. And just to help him have a home base and meet other Irish people where he met one of Ireland's most famous sons, James Joyce, who hated his guts. (laughs) We'll get to that in a minute. He became very active in the Gaelic League, which is an organization that's still around, although now they go by the Irish name Conran Aguelga, which means the Gaelic League in Irish. As an Irish person, what do you know about the Gaelic League? What I would have known was that they were like a... You know, an, an attempt to revive the mm-hmm. Irish language and culture before it was completely eradicated, mm-hmm. or you know, it was like they could see even in the nineteenth century it was in trouble. So you mm-hmm. had the GAA, and they were involved in athletic sports, uh, Irish football and uh, hurling, and then the Gaelic League were into the language revival and the preservation of the culture. That's about mm-hmm. it. Trench and his cousins were very actively involved in, and he was so into this that he himself took on an Irish name, which is going to sound very familiar. Uh. Yes. Because it's Dermot. I hate this name. I, it's like oh, no. tor- it's torture. In the, li- yeah. Living in America with this name is hell. Try ordering a coffee with it. Yeah. See what happens. I, well, German gets a coffee. Yeah, they say, oh, what's your name? German. Uh, George, Jeffrey, <laughs> Jervis. And it's already anglicized. It's Jermud is the Irish. Dermot's the anglicized mm-hmm. version. Jermud? Yeah. yeah. And so he went by Jermud Trinshach, which was the Irish version of his last name that mm-hmm. I think he must have invented because Trench is an English name. Yeah, he probably came up with like a, the nearest. Yeah. yeah. But he, he used the family name Trinshach as well as his, both his cousins. And we'll hear from one of his cousins, uh, a separate cousin in a little bit. And he also adopted that last name. He went. He started going by Dermot amongst friends in Dublin. And Gogarty said in his autobiography, Morning Became Mrs. Spenlove, where he talks a lot about this period in his life. But he says about Trench visiting Ireland, The effect on Trench was astonishing. First of all, he applied to the courts for permission to change his name by deed poll, meaning he legally changed his name. He became Jermwidge instead of Samuel. Gogarty says he legally changed his name to the Irish spell. And not only Dermot, which is an Irish name, but to the Irish spelling of Dermot because he was so in love with Ireland and all things Irish. The other thing he did was he did write a pamphlet that was published in 1907 entitled What is the Use of Reviving Irish? I've read the little bits of it I can find online. Turns out he thinks there's a lot of use to reviving Irish, which... I think in the last couple episodes, too, I feel a little guilty because I'm actually quite fond of the Irish language. Dermot doesn't like it, but... Well, no, I, I don't like the way it was taught. Uh, we, yeah. were all, we were all, any Irish person, especially mm-hmm. people my age, I'm 49, any Irish person my yeah. age has probably had a very bad experience going through the Irish school system with that language. And I think they have much better teaching techniques mm-hmm. now uh, that are yeah. uh, helping kids uh, you know, yeah. get to grip with a very difficult language. It's not easy mm-hmm. to learn. Um, it's it's more regular in spelling and pronunciation and grammar than English. More irregular? More regular. Regular. Yeah. Okay. Well, well hooray. <laughs> it's still difficult. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I'm quite fond of it, and I feel kind of bad because I haven't defended it mm-hmm. against Dermot. I just feel foolish as an American <laughs> person be like, no, it's great. It's the other way around. I mean, you're an American person who can speak the language, and I can't. Yeah. So. But it's, uh, it's actually a very lovely language, and there are plenty of resources online if you'd like to hear it spoken or if you'd like to learn it yourself. Anyway, I, I do think there are some great reasons to revive Irish, or at least keep it going, because it wouldn't be revived because it's never died. 
But it's a very small percentage of the population actually. Yeah, the last speaker, there was one uh, speaker, the final person who spoke only in Irish, mm -hmm. and he died in the 1980s. Yeah, what's yeah. called a, a monolingual speaker. Right. There are lots of bilingual people, but I don't think anyone is monolingual Irish mm -hmm. speaker anymore. But right. that doesn't mean it isn't alive and well in some small part. A large part thanks to the internet mm -hmm. and to people like Dermot Trench who worked so hard to keep it going. But this pamphlet, What is the Use of Reviving Irish, is the only thing he ever had published, uh, once again in 1907, so three years after he was at the Tower with Joyce. And if you'd like to see a copy of it, it is viewable at the Joyce Tower Museum at the Sandy Cove Martello Tower. Mm, where we've been mm -hmm. also. And I tweeted a picture of it a long time ago, and I'm going to go back through my Twitter and find a picture of it's it. It's also a, a, a most place uh, to visit uh, mm -hmm. if anyone's visiting yeah. Dublin. So. Mm -hmm. Let's see, what else did this guy do? He also, he ended up staying in Dublin uh, because he loved it there, and he made so many friends while in the short few years he was there. He went on and he performed in an Irish language play in Dublin to critical acclaim in those years. And sadly, he died in 1909. Um, he, he took his own life. Uh, the reasons are not quite clear. Gogarty says in his autobiography that it was because of a woman, but I haven't seen that repeated anywhere else. And as we'll come to learn, Gogarty, while he is delightful and entertaining, is a very unreliable narrator. Mm. So a major incident then in his contact with James Joyce is the, pla the Black Panther episode. So this is mentioned in Ulysses in the form of Stephen Dedalus says that he's kept awake all night by Haynes screaming about a Black Panther, having a dream about a Black Panther. We're going to start with the, the source on this. So Joyce mentions it, and it's, it's not totally clear what that means. Uh, there are definitely plenty of Joyce scholars, amateur and otherwise, who will tell you the deep symbolic meaning of this. But uh, Oliver Gogarty has his own take on it. If you don't mind, Dermot, I'd like to hear you read it. Okay. One summer night, when it was too hot to sleep, although the door was open, shortly after midnight, Trench, who had been dozing, awoke suddenly and screamed, The Black Panther! He produced a revolver and fired two or three shots in the direction of the grate. Then, exhausted, he subsided into sleep. I gently removed the gun. Joyce sat up on his elbow, overcome by consternation. Soon again, as I had guessed he would, Trench awoke and saw the Black Panther. Leave him to me, I said, and shot down all the tin cans on the top of Joyce. This was too much for that sensitive soul who rose, pulled on his frayed trousers and shirt, took his ash plant with the handle at right angles to the shaft, and in silence left the tower forever. This will explain the rather obscure reference to the Black Panther in Ulysses, but I am sure that the scholiasts can explain it more obscurely. Thank you. But yeah, so Gogarty says this is this is where it came from, is this guy would have bad dreams, some kind of night terrors, and Gogarty's the one who shot down all the cans on top of James Joyce. Pissed him off. He was so angry. He just, the story goes, he just walked out in the middle of the night into the rain and walked the nine miles back to his uncle's house in Dublin. He left behind early manuscripts of what would become Dubliners, which he then sent for. But he never went back to the tower after that. That was his sixth day staying in the Martello Tower. Ulysses makes it sound like he was there a lot longer, but in reality, he was there for about six days. Trench ended up staying for a few months into the autumn. Those were also the only six days that Joyce ever spent with uh, Dermot Trench. Here enters C.E.F. Trench, who's a, a, dis a distant cousin of Dermot 
Trench. He was born the same year that Trench died, so they never actually knew each other. But in 1975, he wrote an article called Dermot Chenevy Trench and Haynes of Ulysses, specifically with the goal of rehabilitating his cousin's reputation. Because you know him from the little bit I've had you read out of Telemachus. Mm -hmm. And he's just a very dorky character. Mm -hmm. He's super giddy to learn about everything Irish, like the way I kind of was to learn everything about the elves of Middle Earth (laughs) in high school. You know, kind of something that is just in books and it's maybe not totally real, but it's just kind of a, a, a playground for him. Right. Which is Irish culture. Like you think he's being a bit of a dilettante about it. Yeah. yeah. And he looks very foolish. And as we'll see, um, C.E.F. Trench is not alone in his distaste for Joyce's characterization of his cousin. And one area where he really wants to rehabilitate his cousin's image is that he says this whole Black Panther business was totally made up. That Trench never actually fired his gun inside the Martello Tower. That Gogarty likely just got sick of Joyce. Joyce is a great writer and a genius, but I think he would have been a really difficult person to be around. We've been in that room, Mm -hmm. and if as many shots went off in that room as are described, Mm -hmm. there'd be bullet holes. Mm. I think you'd see one or two. There's still bullet holes all over the study from 1916. Sure, but Gogarty said he shot down all the pans. Right, but surely the a pan wouldn't abs- what like hard cast mm-hmm. iron pans? Do we think? I have no idea what they're I think made it's of. Cans. I mean, you know, you mm-hmm. think at least one of these shots oh, would have gone stray, and there'd be a somebody mm-hmm. would have found like a bullet lodged in a wall or a ricocheted mm-hmm. something or other. And I don't think there's anything that anyone's um, seen. On the other hand, they're built of this strong stone that's meant to withstand. Napoleon. But we're yeah, talking Napoleon. About the, the inside, the interior, though, yeah. not necessarily would need to, to be that fortified. Mm-hmm. Is it the same stone, though? Yeah, I don't know, but we should go in there and shoot a gun off sometime. Yeah, and let's find do that. that. Yeah. Next, time, Next we're time we're in Dublin, Dublin. we'll do that. Yeah. Uh, for <laughs> the NSA, we, we do <laughs> we, not plan to actually go shoot a gun joking. in the Martello Tower. Please don't arrest us. <laughs> Yeah, so C.E.F. Trench thinks that Gogarty probably just asked Joyce to leave because their friendship was on the rocks by that point anyway. They'd been friends for years, but they're very different personalities. Gogarty is sort of this sarcastic, outgoing kind of personality, and Joyce was very self-serious. And I think that they probably just became like oil and water. Mm. As happens with many people in their early 20s, you think your best friend is going to be the perfect roommate, And then you move in together, and it doesn't go well. And I think that's kind of what happened here. And maybe Gogarty made this up as a a face-saving gesture, so that because it 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 allows Joyce to leave on his own terms, rather than just like Gogarty saying, "Get the hell out of my tower! I'm so Mm. sick of you." Cef Trench says too that he knew Gogarty. They spent time on holiday together. And he said during that time, one thing he learned about Gogarty, and I quote, is that making people look ridiculous was a well-known pastime of Gogarty's. Mm. So, again, he he used this as a way to make Haynes look kind of insane because he's screaming about a Black Panther in the middle of the night and shooting his gun in the midst of a, a night terror. And then he gets to step into the story and be kind of light and entertaining and clever and also bully his friend James Joyce on top of it into leaving. And it's just this whole, it, it's such a tall tale. It, it really doesn't seem like a thing that would happen in real life, does it? No. It sounds like a comic tale. 
And yeah, there are some logistical <laughs> questions about firing a gun. But yeah, shooting a gun in there makes me think they would all be dead. <laughs> yeah. Death, anyway. There are some questions, but I mean, I could also see some weird coalescence of events where maybe that would happen. But I don't know. Because here's, here's the thing is I thought, well, if Gogarty made the whole thing up, that's probably not very likely. This autobiography came out in the 50s, well after Joyce had passed away. And Joyce does mention the Black Panther in Ulysses, and he and Gogarty had long ago fallen out by the time he wrote these chapters in the late 1910s. So it's not like they collaborated. But who knows, it could be some little private joke of theirs because Telemachus is packed to the gills with little in-jokes and references that only Gogarty would get, you know, or his close friends would recognize. They wouldn't be things that outsiders would necessarily recognize. Hmm. So it could have been some in-joke they had. My opinion, there's probably some shade of truth to the story. I, I don't think they totally made it up, but it's likely been embellished by Gogarty who is a famous embellisher. And trickster. Yeah. <laughs> Joyce doesn't mention the pistol in Ulysses, though. Ulysses is autobiographical to a certain degree, but it's very fictionalized. And he tweaks events, both historical and personal, just to fit the narrative of Ulysses quite a bit. So he could have left that out. You know, I mean, it's believable that Trench may have suffered from some kind of mental illness that could have led to night terrors and eventually his, his suicide. But uh, Joyce's brother Stanislaus did write in his diary around that time that Gogarty, and here's a quote, Gogarty wants to put Jim out, but he is afraid that if Jim made a name someday, it would be remembered against him. Mm. In other words, uh, Joyce would take literary vengeance against mm -hmm. him. He did take literary vengeance against anyway, him yeah. because Gogarty hated the way he was portrayed in Ulysses. So, mm. And there's no one better than a former best friend to get that kind of vengeance just right. But what the poor old trench do to deserve his treatment? That's a great question. And we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But first, an issue of sources. So the biggest problem with this story is there are very few sources. Hmm. The three sources that we have are Gogarty, who, as I said, are, is very creative with the use of, of facts in his autobiography. Mm -hmm. The second source is C.E.F. Trench, his cousin, who says in the first paragraph of his article that he has an agenda and that his agenda is, quote, assemble what information is available about Trench and to correct some errors of fact which are current in Joyce literature. I, I think he just didn't like to see his family name sullied in this way. Yeah, it turned into like a cartoon character. Because Haynes is not a particularly sympathetic character. Although, my goal is by the end of this to make some of our listeners feel some sympathy for him. I've gone from still not having much sympathy for Haynes himself, but for the man behind him. So yeah. I'm getting off topic. And the third source, of course, is Joyce. Now, Joyce only knew Trench for six days. He immediately disliked Trench. But on the other hand, Joyce didn't like too many people. Mm -hmm. He, in my notes, I just wrote, hates everyone. <laughs> But pretty much, I mean, if you, you look at Ulysses, most of the people in it are fairly unsympathetic portraits of the people he would have known in Dublin, including himself. Like, Stephen Dedalus is not a cuddly, lovable character. And I want to read another quote from Morning Became Mrs. Spenlove on his feelings towards Trench. Here we go. Trench upset Joyce literally and metaphorically. Joyce courteously offered his place by the door for Trench's bed and went over to the right 
under the large shelf with his bed. All went well for some weeks, for we were using the tower only to sleep in except on weekends. Trench tried but failed to convert Joyce to Gaelic, so he becomes the Englishman Haynes in Ulysses, where Joyce betrays a hidden respect for what is derisively called the ascendancy. And that brings us kind of to our next topic, which is the ascendancy. My, my notes here, this, is called, this section is called Why Hate Haynes? So these are some reasons <laughs> why one could reasonably hate uh, Dermot Trench. And this first one is the idea of the ascendancy, which was definitely a new term for me, sometimes called the Protestant ascendancy. These are the Anglo-Irish and who they are in Ireland, so mm. uh, resident Irish person. <laughs> <laughs> what, what does this mean to you when you hear it? Uh, anybody in Ireland who would identify with the Church of Ireland, which would be uh, not the Roman Catholic Church, of course, but the Irish branch of the Anglican Church, which was the, uh, you know, the high church of Britain. They were the ruling class. They would have been on a fast track. They would have had preferential status in society. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, basically, they were the ones who ruled the place. Mm-hmm. And there would have been beneath them uh, or alongside them, you know, some Catholics as well. The upper echelon of Catholic mm-hmm. society would have also had a place. It wasn't yeah, as if every Catholic People like Gogarty's family. Yeah, yeah, they still existed. But, the, but the, in general, the ruling class, you know, would have identified with Britain uh, and the official religion of Britain and British culture and language and so mm-hmm. Yeah, so Gogarty and Trench were both wealthier than Joyce. A lot of Joyce's antipathy towards Trench was a class-based hatred. Does, mm. that, does that sound... Oh, it would have been a mixture, I think, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. An intersection of hatreds. This guy's coming from Britain, from, he's from Oxford, probably from a, a fairly you know, aristocratic family, uh, doesn't have to worry about money. So, oh, yeah, he's ready-made to be hated. Mm-hmm. This is a time, too, when Joyce was living hand-to-mouth. He... Mm-hmm. And one reason he was living in the Martello Tower was not so much that he was into the artistic experiment and the Hellenization of Ireland, yada, 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 that Gogarty was. It's because he had literally been kicked out of every other place that he had for non-payment of rent, and Gogarty was willing to take him in. It was his last his last stop before mm-hmm. homelessness, more, mm-hmm. more or less, so... I think the six days he spent there, he's probably not in a good place emotionally. And, you know, to see some, you know, guy who just loves Ireland come buzzing in from Oxford just to visit. And he's living there, not because he has to, but just it's so interesting and novel that that would piss anybody off, I think. My next one here says cultural appropriation. So it just it's sort of cultural anger at a a wealthy oppressor in love with Ireland, the land that Joyce repeat, repeatedly referred to in his writings as the sow that eats her pharaoh, a mother pig who's devouring her young, who does not appreciate her intellectuals and artists like Joyce slash Stephen Dedalus. And here's this guy from England, thinks he knows so much about Ireland. He doesn't know nothing about Ireland. He hasn't lived it, man. He hasn't been the one pawning all his stuff off like... Joyce's family trying to make ends meet because his dad's drinking himself to death, you know. Yeah. So he he basically, uh, Trench has the luxury Mm -hmm. of being able to come to the place basically as a glorified tourist. Yeah, he, and I think this this kind of spilled over onto people like Yates and Lady Gregory, who Joyce also did not like, is that they see Ireland as this this wonderful, beautiful, mythical playground for nymphs and fairies, Mm -hmm. and... That's just not what it was like for most Irish people. And that here's this guy from England who says he loves Ireland so much and all he sees is the frolicking nymphs and fairies and the 
the great language and the fun little sayings and songs and folklore, and he doesn't see any of the... The, the squalor, the, yeah. the suffering. Today we have people like that too. We call them American tourists. Bada ding, bada boom. But no, it's true. I mean, I've met people like who, who you know, and I'm not trying to be mean, but mm -hmm. people who have a view of Ireland that's been created completely synthetically, artificially, and they can visit the country, be there for three weeks and not actually see it. Mm -hmm. Even today, right now, without the kind of suffering and deprivation that Joyce was describing, you can... Uh, I've, I've met these people and when they, when they find out I'm Irish, their eyes glaze over and like, they're not even seeing me. You know, they're, they go to a country that has huge roads and telephones everywhere and computers and half of Google works there and they won't see any, but they're playing the quiet man in their head with John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder if something like that was bothering Joyce about yeah. Trench at the time too. And I think too, there's something especially galling when it comes to the language because the Irish language was something that was taken from the Irish by the English. And to have an Englishman there telling him, oh, you've got to learn Irish, you got to learn Irish, you got to learn, oh, it's so great, it's so beautiful. Joyce did take Irish lessons. He took them from none, no one less than Patrick Pierce himself, who was a leader in the 1916 uprising. Right. He's obviously very interested in language. He just never quite took to Irish. But to have this kind of geeky little guy here mm -hmm. telling you, oh, it's so great, you got to learn it, and... You know, that's kind of dramatizing the scene with the milk woman in, in Ulysses where, oh, right. you, you got to learn Irish. It's so great. And Mulligan says he thinks that the Irish ought to speak Irish. But it was his people that took it away right. and, and punished it and penalized it in the first place. All right. The next thing I have here is uh, this Irish proverb. So there are lots of proverbs in, in Irish, in the Irish language, and there are tons of them that are th what I call three things proverbs. They're things I learned in my Irish class. But this, this one is three things, this is a proverb, three things to be aware of. Horn of a bull, hoof of a horse, smile of a Saxon. Mm -hmm. And it, it appears at the end of Telemachus. Joyce did include this particular proverb in English at the end of his chapter that featured Haynes. So I feel like that one probably... Bit of a dig, you think? I, th I, I think it was a very intentional dig. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No matter how friendly this guy is, he finds him inherently untrustworthy or something to beware of. I, I, I'm trying to like factor in like what little is known about the man, mm -hmm. but based on I can't trust anything from Gogarty or from mm -hmm. Joyce because they're just axe grinders. They they had their own like ways of dealing with people and dealing with facts, and they were very flexible with it. Clearly, mm -hmm. and uh, everything you've told me about Joyce was, you know, uh, the slightest offense would mm -hmm. be taken. And uh, Gogarty was just a, a, a congenital fabricator of tall tales. But yeah, so they, they might have various reasons for resenting uh, Trench and mm -hmm. being jealous of him. But that doesn't mean those feelings are they're understandable, but maybe not justified. And I think I have a sympathy for anybody who has an affection for an alien culture doesn't make them the devil and uh, Irish identity is way more complex than just Catholic versus Protestant or English versus Irish they kind of blend into one another they're not they're they're not um, homogenous they're they're you know there's a very fuzzy boundary between them and uh, you know so that when I when I see this kind of thing where oh he's English so you know he must be a bad guy I don't buy it uh, it's not enough 
And what, what we know about his cousins was they were deadly serious about mm -hmm. Irish nationalism. I mean, mm -hmm. and they could have died uh, fighting for Irish nationalism. And there's a lot of people today who consider themselves Irish nationalists who don't have an ounce of the, the uh, legitimacy that his cousins had. Um, so given that his two cousins were very serious, like life and death serious mm -hmm. about it, I'm inclined to think that he was as well. And he's the one who got him into it. They right. became interested in it because of him. Right. And he, he didn't live to see 1916 and to have to take sides, but I very strongly suspect he probably would have been, if he, mm -hmm. if he hadn't checked out, he probably would have been involved and might be better known today. Mm -hmm. My last point here says, Trench was genuinely annoying. <laughs> now, there's ample evidence for this. <laughs> he may well have been. Yeah. First of all... It's, just he was speaking Irish all the time, whether or not people un understood him or not. <laughs> so we've all had an overeager friend. Yeah. And we may, we may genuinely love them. I think Gogarty had genuine affection for Trench, but, right. but it's dorky. Yeah. It's, this episode's called In Defense of Dorkiness. So let's, let's just be honest about dorkiness right now. Now let's get to the goods here. I've got another, another passage from Morning Became Mrs. Spenlove on uh, Mr. Trench. Uh, he grew so zealous for things made in Ireland that he went about with his shoe leather all green for want of blacking made in Ireland. He removed the shades of our lamps and filled the tower with smoke until Irish glass would appear to take their place. So it was that level of nationalism. This lampshade wasn't made in Ireland, so we can't have it. And I think his cousins were similar. Like, they would only use things that were made in Ireland to the <laughs> stark annoyance of all their loved ones. Yeah, it sounds like they were yeah. overcompensating a bit. I think he was genuinely mentally ill. Mm -hmm. he, was, he was someone who was experiencing mental illness. Mental illness. So a lot, some of what we know about Gogarty's relationship to him comes from letters that Gogarty wrote to a friend of his named G.K.A. Bell. And Gogarty said to Bell of Trench is delightful, erratic, and neurotic, but he could not sympathize with my Boeotian existence in the tower. And Boeotian means stupid, foolish, or dull-witted. Oh, right. But he does describe erratic and neurotic really jumped out to me when I read this. Mm -hmm. And one thing he did do is that he, upon leaving the tower, because he eventually, you know, went on and got his own place, Gogarty had a gold and ivory shaving brush that he was quite fond of that... Uh, went AWOL around that time. So uh, the assumption is that I mean, what he says to Bell is that he thinks Trench stole it. Mm. And he's just kind of like, oh, I can have it. And the, way he, the way he wrote it, he had just seemed like, I didn't really like that he took that, but he took it. Mm. Yeah, so I I think that he, he may well have been in the throes of some kind of mental illness if he was having night terrors and right. stealing things and... I mean, just the idea of like, no, 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 we can't have non-Irish glass. We have to get rid of this until Irish glass is there. And like, mm. he's from a well-to-do family, but he's letting his shoes go all discolored because he he didn't have the right shoe polish for them out of this hyper-nationalism. You know, like it, it's, it can be sincere, but it can be too extreme if it's combined with some sort of I, I'm not even going to guess what disorder it might be because... No point, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I, I mean... He, he may have been a sweetheart, but, I mean, that would drive anyone crazy. And, and Joyce, yeah. you know, Gogarty might have been more amused by it or just kind of easygoing about it. But I mean, Joyce really would have no time for that. I mean, clearly he didn't. Yeah. Being an intense 22-year-old again, these are mm -hmm. barely adults we're talking about. Like even yeah. given that, okay, people were more mature for their age back mm -hmm. then, but they're still 22. Yeah. 
All right. Those are the reasons why someone might hate Dermot Trench. Mm. So to finish out our talk today, this section is called In Defense of Trench. We could say In Defense of Dermot. In Defense of Dermot Trench, yeah. (laughs) He was a dorky guy, I think is probably clear, but I think he was probably an okay person. And I want to... I, I want to aid his cousin in, in clearing his name, at least for our podcast listeners, because you know what? I think he was a big dork, but I feel like that is a sentiment anyone who's a little bit too into literature can probably empathize with. Something we've kind of skipped over is that Joyce portrayed him as an anti-Semite, and there's mm. nothing I've seen that he was actually an anti-Semite. He could have been, and it just wasn't mentioned. But, I mean, as far as I know, the guy didn't hate Jewish people, but he's he's portrayed very thinly in Ulysses. And one of the things that jumps out is that he says Jews are a problem in England. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that Dermot Trench felt that way. And to portray someone as hateful in that way. Yeah. It might have been cute in 1922, but after 1945, that's kind of a serious slur. Yeah. And I mean, to me, reading it in the 21st century, it seems really awful to, you know, remember someone that way. And next, Joyce only knew him briefly. And I think think was in a really bad place in his own life. He had a bad encounter with this guy for less than a week. The nature of that encounter is not terribly clear in some respects. And Joyce is known for not liking most people that he knew at that period in his life. There was such a long period between when he wrote the book and when he actually knew him in 1904. It was more than 10 years. So he's trying to remember someone to recreate this experience in his early 20s. And he just remembers this annoying guy being there. And writes him as annoyingly as he can to just make him seem really dorky. So it seems like he's probably taking that stereotype of him Mm. and then just heightening it for the the sake of his novel, whether or not that's true. And the the guy had been dead for over a decade by the time Ulysses was published in 1922, which I think seems unnecessarily cruel, just kind of disrespectful. Maybe Joyce didn't know that he had died. I've, I've never been quite clear on that. But this seems kind of mean because mm. he was recognizable to people in Dublin who knew him in the book. It's clear that he's he's mocking this specific person. Right. Because he was so recognizable, friends of Trench were offended on his behalf by Joyce's portrayal. So I mean, if you if you have a friend that you've lost, you can imagine them being memorialized by another friend of yours who kind of had a reputation of being unpleasant in just a really awful way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so C.P. Curran, who is a, he's a writer, and he, he did a number of things, but he was close to Joyce. He was a friend of Joyce's, wrote of the portrayal of Haynes. I can in no way recognize him in the Haynes of Ulysses, and he should not be so identified with him. Another note I have here, and this is written by Mary and Podrick Collum, who were writers and literary critics, and they wrote a book called Our Friend James Joyce. That was just their memories of knowing him. So this is what they wrote about portrayal of Haynes. Needing an Englishman in the scene, Joyce casts this young man for the part. So insistent is he on the alien presence of Haynes that he throws in the 17th century proverb about the three things to beware of, horn of a bull, hoof of a horse, smile of a Saxon. And yet so sure is the drawing that one recognizes in Haynes, a young man who was very well known in various Dublin circles at the time and known mainly for his pro-Irish activities. So he paints him as a ponderous Saxon, but he's someone who was known for loving Ireland, despite, you know, his ethnic heritage. 
Right. The Irish are very fond of, of the uh, phrase, they became more Irish than the Irish themselves, when they talk mm -hmm. about the Vikings or the Normans mm -hmm. or people that are safely in the past. So it's a bit rich to be mm -hmm. uh, playing a purity games when it comes to people that are you know more recently visiting mm -hmm. the country. And it seems like he was accepted. Anything else right. I've read on now, anything else I've read on him is mostly from his cousin, who again had an agenda. Right. So he could have cherry picked. Sure. It just seemed like he was well liked. He was well regarded um, as an actor. He was well received. Gogarty liked him well enough to take him around Ireland and let him live with him for a few months, which yeah. is something Joyce <laughs> didn't. Didn't even make it a week, you know? Mm. So I think he was probably an okay guy. I think he probably had some mental health problems that made him irritating. But Stephen Dedalus himself, to bring it to a close here, and Nestor, so this is on page 30 in my edition of Ulysses, he's talking to Mr. Deasy, and this thought slides through his head. The sea's ruler, his sea-cold eyes looked on the empty bay. History is to blame on me and on my words, unhating. He says of Haynes that he blames history for the problems. His eyes were cold, but he was not a hateful man, which is faint praise, isn't it? Mm -hmm. He didn't hate Stephen or Buck Mulligan or the people around him, but it, Stephen still has this prejudice against him. Right. I guess in conclusion, Haynes is a big dork, and Trench probably was too, but I think he was, he was loved by the people that knew him. He was dedicated to the cause of Irish nationalism and the Irish language in particular. And at least on our podcast, that's what I'd like to remember him for. Here, here. Here, here. All right. See you in two weeks. See you then. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast. Please visit our website at bloomsandbarnacles.com to read our blog, which is updated weekly on Mondays with a new blog post and artwork about James Joyce's novel Ulysses. And you'll find a new podcast there as well, fortnightly. We are on Facebook. You can search for our Facebook group, Blooms and Barnacles Podcast, on Facebook. And if you're on Twitter, you can follow us at BarnacleCast. You can find our podcast pretty much any place you find podcasts. That includes iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Go ahead and subscribe, and you won't have to remember which week we're dropping the podcast. Also, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes, as that helps our rankings and helps people find the podcast. And if you leave a positive review, we'll read it on the podcast. Finally, if you want to get in touch with us, the best way to do that is through email. You can email us at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. Please send questions and comments, and we'll read them on the show if we get any good ones. Until then, have a great two weeks. And we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.